Last time we spoke about the end of the battle over Vela Lavella, the continued offensive against Vinchafen, and some special operations. The naval battle of Vela Lavella saw the last fight over the island, and another successful evacuation. Over on New Guinea, the fight for the Finchafen area continued to rage on, but ultimately, it was crashing, to a bit of a halt for the Allies as they moved cautiously and awaited further reinforcements before taking the fight to places like Saddleburg. Then we spoke about some special operations to explode mines against enemy ships at Singapore Harbor, a new network of Coast Watchers, something like Coast Watchers 2.0, and the Japanese finally cracked down on poor little Portuguese-held Macau. Some ships were blown up, some unfortunate souls were captured in ATEP, and the Japanese basically made Macau a protectorate. This episode is On to Shaggy Ridge. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and so much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Over on my personal channel, I just released an episode on France during the Pacific War, in both English and French. Also, please check out my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel for more exclusive podcasts. The Japanese had entered the Southwest Pacific as conquerors, rapidly grabbing forward bases in places like New Britain, New Guinea, and the Southern Solomon Islands. Yet now in 1943, they were being pushed back, their resources were shrinking, and their troops' morale was crashing. With the Allies becoming stronger with each passing day, General Imamura and Admiral Kuzaka had very little hope of emerging victorious in the coming battles. All either men could do was prepare the best possible defenses they could and hope for a miracle to delay the Allied advance. General Nakai's forces prepared to make a stand at the Finestri Range, and General Katagiri prepared a counterattack against Finchafen. Over in New Guinea, General Vesey's men were continuing their fight against Nakai in the Finestri Range. Since their advance on October the 9th, Colonel Bishop's 2 and 27th Battalion had dug in on Trevor's Ridge and John's Knoll. Just after dawn on October the 10th, a small enemy force charged up Trevor's Ridge. The small attack was beaten back. The battalion's diarist would write of the action. Tojo startled the early morning air with his usual heathen chorus, known to so many as a prelude to an attack. However, 13th Platoon showed him the error of his ways by killing two and wounding one of his six noisy intruders. Meanwhile, the bulk of the 2nd Battalion, 78th Regiment, had pulled back to a place known as Shaggy Ridge, which dominated the area around it. Shaggy Ridge stood 5,600 feet tall, with only a single track going along its ridge line. Lackland Grant would describe the track. It had places only wide enough for one man to pass, with sheer drops on either side, 
The Japanese had concentrated along the Ferrari River area, seeking to unleash another counterattack. They had just received reinforcements in the form of the 1st Battalion, 78th Regiment. Company 3 were sent to Gurumbu. Company 4 to Buganan. Companies 1 and 2 went to help out the 2nd Battalion, while one company began to attack Australian supply lines at Paliers Hill. During the afternoon, two Japanese artillery pieces began to open fire from the Ferrari River area, and at very close range. The first shell passed close to the top of Trevor's Ridge, causing native carriers to freak out and disperse while the shells exploded thousands of yards further on. By 2 p.m., Babadze Lego, acting as FOO, noticed the gun flash and launched a counter-battery against it using a 25-pounder at a range of around 8,000 yards. He successfully silenced the mountain guns for quite a while. The Japanese guns would fire later that afternoon at nearly point-blank range, hitting the battalion's area causing eight casualties but Legault once again silenced the guns. Meanwhile, Brigadier Doherty ordered his 2 and 14th to hold a position at Kumbaram to support Bishop's advance, while Brigadier Ether ordered his 2 and 33rd Battalion to mop up the Japanese out of the Baganan mountain range. The 2 and 33rd quickly advanced up a track, going 4,100 feet high into the Baganan Mountains. At 5 p.m., Kitty Hawks strafed the Japanese positions at the crest of the ridge, and a boomerang dropped a message on the advancing men that told them the Japanese were in foxholes and trenches immediately overlooking them. During these aerial attacks, the Japanese tried to fire back using machine guns and rifles, but while doing so, apparently they did not see a forward company of the 2 and 33rd closing in around them. The 2 and 33rd crept up the ridge under the cover of darkness as the Japanese were completely unaware. They were too busy during the daylight hours focusing on the Kitty Ox. During the night, the Australians surprised attacked the Japanese, sending them right into a flight. Many men began running, and then they tried to get themselves together and fight back. But the time and the momentum was not on their side, and the Australians soon seized the ridge. On October the 10th, Vasey ordered his forces to patrol extensively. The 2 and 7th were patrolling the Kesawai area. The 2 and 2nd concentrated in the Fitai area. The 2 and 16th went west of Bebe and the 2 and 27th patrolled around Trevor's Ridge towards the Faria River. The 2 and 27th skirmished with the enemy who were defending their artillery positions. To the east of the Faria and the Uriah Rivers, the 2 and 33rd were patrolling past the feature that they had just captured. Their patrols ran into ambushes and they were forced to go back. On October the 11th, Japanese raiding parties attacked a supply line going between the 2 and 14th and the 2 and 27th battalions forcing the former to send a platoon to seize Pellier's Hill. A platoon of the 2 and 14th was led by Lieutenant Pellier. They had to advance up the hill in a single file, as most of it was simply too steep. At around 5 p.m., men atop the nearby King's Hill supported them with artillery, motors, and machine gun fire. The support was so strong, Pellier's platoon made it up to the first mount without any opposition. Upon the mound, Pellier deployed a Bren gun and two-inch motors, while Pellier's men were surprised at the lack of enemy fire, and they rapidly made their way up to what was being called Pellier's Hill by the end of it. As they got closer to the summit, artillery stopped, leaving just motors and machine gun fire to support. The hill became even steeper, and when they got within just 20 yards of the Japanese, their support fire finally ceased. The Japanese were about a company or so in strength, and they began firing everything they had. During the mayhem at a critical moment, many Japanese raised their heads from their weapon pits and rolled grenades down on the Australians 20 feet below them. Most of them rolled too far down, doing no damage. 
the Australians began tossing their own grenades as they charged forward, driving the enemy out. Lieutenant Peller's platoon had attacked a Japanese company well entrenched in a seemingly impregnable position, routing them, and it was astounding. Despite the heavy support getting up the hill, the Japanese should have easily held their positions. Pellier lost just three men dead and five wounded, including himself, while they killed an estimated 30 Japanese and captured a vital piece of ground to keep their supply line running. The capture of Pellier's hill was of a great relief to Duarte, who watched the thing personally. Had his supply line been cut longer, the 227th may have run out of ammunition and rations. Back over in the Finchaffen area, Brigadier Windair now realized he needed to seize Saddleberg in order to secure his gains. General Yamada continued his attacks against the most forward Australian positions at Jaifeneng. At 6.15 a.m., the Japanese cut the telephone lines to the Australian forward positions and they began probing their lines with attacks. The Japanese were driven off by 2- and 3-inch motors while the Australians cautiously made their way up the Saddleberg Road. They were about a quarter mile from their objective when the leading platoon's leader, Lieutenant Dost, was shot dead. Lieutenant Richardson took another platoon forward to investigate, and he was wounded by gunfire. By this point, the defensive lines had repulsed numerous attacks. Both sides were taking heavy casualties, but the Japanese were failing to stop the advance. Still, the 2 and 43rd were forced to dig in around 400 yards from their besieged company. After the technical fall of Finchhafen, Windair assigned most of his brigade to defend the southern portion of it while the 2 and 17th advanced north to capture Kumoa. Wendir was realizing the dual tasks were simply too much for his meager forces, but luckily for him, Generals Herring and Wooten held a meeting at Ley on September the 30th, where they decided to reinforce him with General Heavy's brigade. General Heavy's men would secure Finchhafen and then perform an offensive against Sio. On October the 1st, General Blamey decided the time had come to give Herring a rest. He appointed Lieutenant General Leslie Morsehead's 2nd Corps to take over the New Guinea offensive. On October the 7th, Morset arrived at Dobudura, and Herring departed for Port Moresby and then Australia. He would never return to the front lines. It was supposed to be General Ivan McKay that would relieve Herring, but he ran into squabbles with General Douglas MacArthur over reinforcements for Finchhafen. The junior officers felt McKay should have forced the issue and enlisted Blamey for help, but ultimately both were set aside for Lieutenant General Sir Leslie Morset. Prior, McKay had convinced Blamey that Herring was becoming increasingly difficult to work with as a result of stress and fatigue, which led to Herring's relief. Blamey maintained his faith in Herring, who would retain command of the First Corps on the Atherton Tableland, where he could train his men in amphibious warfare for the next operation. But Herring's period of active service was all but over. Herring had given able service in a high appointment through a year of fierce campaigning. He quite simply could use the rest. Herring assumed he would come back to relieve Morshead, but in February of 1944, he would be appointed Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Victoria instead. Back over at the front, the Australian commanders decided it was necessary to capture the Tammy Islands. The 2 and 32nd Battalion departed Leigh on October the 2nd, arriving at Wanham Island. Major Mollard took command of the battalion and received another company called the Denny's Force, consisting of a Redder Detachment, Pioneers, Motors, Signals, and a section of 6.50 caliber machine guns, two LCMs, and 14 LCVs from the 52nd EBSR. 
When the men landed at Wanam Island, they were greeted by four friendly natives waving their arms. An interpreter spoke to the natives, who told him there were no Japanese on the islands. Then the natives took a few men with some paddling canoes around Kalal and Wanam Islands, showing them indeed there was no Japanese. The natives were then rounded up, 74 in all, and asked to help establish a radar station on Kalal. The natives had very little food because of the terror from bombers and strafers in the area. These poor people had actually been living in some caves and dug out coral instead of their traditional huts. Apparently, they were treated very well, and they helped the work effort. And you know what? It's not often said, but the native populations made a huge difference in the Pacific War. You keep hearing me say things like native carriers and such. Well, the war was literally thrust onto these people, most of whom were just going about their peaceful lives. The Japanese often showed brutality. It's not as if it was 100%, but statistically, the Americans or Australians in the Pacific were much more well-known for being favored by the natives, particularly in New Guinea. Sometimes it pays off to just be nice. Now, the following day, the 217th departed Colomb on an extremely difficult route ironically named Easy Street. And I honestly, I can't stop hearing that song from uh, Negan in The Walking Dead. If you know it, you know it. Dumb random fact, I read that comic series, and uh, yeah, I'm a little disappointed how the show went. I never really finished the show, but the comic series was pretty excellent. Easy Street went towards Kisawa and then Kumawa. David Dexter described it as, It was so steep and muddy that on one occasion, two tractors were attached to one jeep, but they were all bogged down. The Australians were surprised to see no enemy attacks against Jivaneng at this time at least. The 243rd attempted an attack at 5.45 p.m., led by Lieutenant Combs' company. The Australians tried desperately to attack the well-dug-in enemy positions along a route. The enemy knew better than them. Soon the company became pinned down and casualties were mounting. Combs was wounded when his Owen was shot out of his hand. He assessed the situation, 17 casualties with 6 deaths. So he ordered the men to pull back. The 243rd by this point had a total of 47 casualties, with 14 deaths and 5 missing. The 243rd had failed to make a breakthrough again, thus the decision was made to have their forces evacuated. To the north, the 2nd Bataan 80th Regiment had burst into the scene, advancing through Wario and Garika. Fearing the Japanese threat to Scarlet Beach, the 2 and 3rd Pioneers and the 2 and 2nd Machine Gun Companies were sent to contain the enemy. By this time, the 217th Battalion had just reached Easy Street Junction. Windir had wanted them to hit Kumawa, as it seemed one of the most likely places the Japanese would have retreated to from Finchafen. However, he also knew the new threat required additional forces, so he divided the 217th into two groups. Two companies led by Major Pike and Captain Sheldon detached and formed a separate HQ under Major McLaren to stop the Japanese from attacking Scarlet Beach while Colonel Simpson led the remainder to Kumawa. On October the 4th, suddenly the enemy eased up on both fronts. The surrounded company of the 243rd took the opportunity to break out and go to the east. Patrols began reporting that the Japanese had also withdrawn, so the bulk of the 243rd gradually moved to reoccupy Jaipavnang. Meanwhile, McLaurin's 217th detachment attempted their first attack against the enemy. McLaurin sent two platoons north of the Song River, who quickly found themselves in a firefight with the enemy. They were forced to withdraw. Then at 11.30 a.m., an LCV, 
came over the Song River drawing fire from the Japanese, allowing McLaurin to pinpoint exactly where the enemy was. At 2.15, McLaurin sent a platoon to make contact with the Japanese again, followed up by 5 p.m. with Pike's company. The Japanese were hit with an artillery bombardment as Pike's company came single file and they advanced to an assembly position around North Hill. The next day, North Hill's area was seized and just as the Australians had managed to encircle the enemy's position, scouts reported that they had abandoned it. It seemed to the Australians that the Japanese had withdrawn into the mountains again. In truth, General Yamada was preparing a counterattack. As for General Katagiri, by late September he had ordered his 2nd Battalion, 79th Regiment, to advance through a native inland path avoiding the coastal roads over some western hills that led to Saddleburg. The battalion arrived at Boring Benoning by October the 7th, while the rest of the division got to Saddleburg by October the 11th. With the reinforcements on hand, Katagiri planned a major counterattack aimed at Arndt Point, due for mid-October. Meanwhile, on October the 5th, the 217th successfully seized Kumoa after fighting a small engagement against an enemy post in the village. The 215th were quickly directed to relieve them at Kumoa as the 217th began to see continuous counterattacks. Simpson's 217th were being hit from the northeast, west, and south. His position was too thin, leading to a large danger of encirclement. The Japanese performed numerous infiltrating attacks, trying to break his lines of communication to add to Simpson's misery. The supply of ammunition and rations being carried by natives along a track were being delayed heavily by torrential rain. The native carriers were likewise in danger of enemy fire. It seemed evident the Japanese were quite alarmed at losing Kumoa. On October the 6th, Yamada's 3rd Battalion 80th Regiment successfully severed the communications between the company and her HQ by taking a position on a track between them. For three hours, the Japanese had made several assaults on Kumoa until 1 p.m. when the track was reopened and a telephone line was quickly relayed. The Japanese continued their harassment, but then the 2 and 15th arrived and they turned the tide against them. The men were low on supplies as the heavy rain made it impossible for jeeps to advance up the track to Kumawa. Since the 5th of October, the 2 and 17th had been eating meager amounts. By the 8th, they had nothing left. Windier felt because of the lack of supplies, he had to halt the advance of the 2 and 17th and 2 and 15th. The 2 and 17th Battalion diarist, describing the defense of Kumawa, would write, The enemy caused us no trouble, but our stomachs did. Colonel Grace likewise turned down an offer by Windair to arrange an airdrop because he believed that the Japanese did not yet know of his men's presence in Kumawa. This would lose him the chance of intercepting any belated parties moving towards Saddleburg along the track from Tiramoro. On October the 9th, McLaurin decided to capture a vital feature in front of Jevenang, known as the Knoll, to improve his tactical position. I guess they just kind of ran down of names or something. McLaurin opened up the attack with artillery, as Sheldon's company performed an encirclement maneuver led by Papuan scouts to sneak platoons 10 yards from the Japanese positions. Suddenly at 11.10 a.m., the forward platoons unleashed fire on the Japanese and charged their outposts. As the men charged the knoll itself, only a single Japanese would be seen as countless had fled, leaving By 1 p.m., Sheldon's company were digging in on the knoll where they had found 60 Japanese foxholes. The Japanese launched a counterattack beginning with a bugle call and the usual screams as they charged within five yards of the Australians' new defensive positions. Grenades were rolled down the knoll and automatic fire kept them at bay until the Japanese finally backed off. At 6.45, the Japanese attempted a second counterattack, 
this time as a full company, but they were likewise repulsed. The next day saw more Japanese counterattacks against the Knoll. The defending Australians reported hearing them scream, yeah, to which they would scream it right back at them. Apparently, they also heard them scream, ho. The Australians would also scream, ho, back at them. The Japanese were also sending many patrols to search for viable approaches for the upcoming counteroffensive, while they awaited reinforcements and supplies. The Australians noted the considerable enemy movement, believing a large number of Japanese reinforcements were due to arrive from the north. Back over in Leh, General Wooten's HQ and the 24th Brigade had finally begun their departure for Finjafen. When Wooten landed, he decided to reorganize his forces to gain control of the approaches to Wario and Saddleburg hoping to also provide an opening to launch an offensive against Seo. He divided the Finchhafen area into three sectors of responsibility. The 24th Brigade would defend the Scarlet Beach area. The 20th Brigade would perform an offensive against Saddleburg, and the 22nd Battalion would defend the Dreger Harbor area. On October the 11th, the 2 and 17th finally re-secured Jevavanang on the 12th. Wooten then sent Captain Gore with Company C of the Papuan Battalion to perform a large-scale deep patrol looking into the wario saddleburg Maruroro area. On the 13th, the 2 and 15th hit back at the Japanese west of Kumua. At 9 a.m., they began a firefight around 150 yards apart, using machine guns mostly. Casualties were high for both sides, but Sergeant Else kept the four platoons advancing, refusing to allow the forces to be pinned down. The Japanese had 39 deaths before they began fleeing. The Australians suffered 5 deaths and 30 casualties. For the next two days, things seemed to be relatively quiet, but it was to be the calm before the storm, as Kathagiri earmarked October the 16th for his counteroffensive. Wooten knew something was on its way, and he was greatly relieved to see the arrival of the 228th and the 232nd Battalions on October the 15th. However, he was also quite bitter about the lack of cooperation between the Australians and the Americans, which he believed prevented them from quickly reinforcing Finjafen. By the 15th, Woon had two-thirds of his division in the area, and a signal from Morset informed him that the general headquarters had ordered the 26th Brigade from Ley to Finjafen at 30 hours' notice. It was heartening news, but it also contrasted strongly with the protracted negotiations allowing for the 2 and 43rd to go to Scarlet Beach by the end of September. It was also indicative of the gravity of the situation. Various commanders had learned very brutal lessons. The Japanese were given a chance to seize the initiative. General McKay would write to blame on October the 20th. Through not being able to reinforce quickly, the enemy has been given time to recover, and we have not been able to exploit our original success. Through the piecemeal arrival of reinforcements, the momentum of the attack has not been maintained. As was proved in the lay operations, the provision of adequate forces at the right place and time is both the quickest and most economical course. Windeer received orders to coordinate the defenses of Langmak Bay and to, quote, hold ground at all costs. He was to perform a defense in depth, maintain a mobile reserve, organize coast-watching stations, and beach defenses. Wooten went to work ordering the forces to put up positions on track junctions in the Bunga area, North Hill, all of the high ground going two miles west of Scarlet Beach through Jevavanang, Kumawa, Tiramaro, Budawang, Logawang, and for the 532nd EBSR base at Dreger Harbor. The Allies were preparing for a major storm. 
Over the Finestries, on October the 11th, General Morsed had just flown in for the first time to Dampu, where he told Vesey that because of administration limitations, there could be no further advance into the mountains for the time being. The following morning, Colonel Bishop's 227th over at Trevor's Ridge were hit by Japanese mountain guns. At 10.45, the 2nd Battalion, 78th Regiment, launched an assault against their position. The attack was supported by five woodpeckers. That is referring to the Japanese-type 92 heavy machine gun, alongside two mountain guns, motors and light machine guns as well. Trevor's Ridge and John's Knoll got the full bombardment treatment. Then the Japanese charged, tossing grenades with fixed bayonets overrunning the Australian positions on the lower early slope. However, this lower slope could be hit hard from the crest above. So the Japanese soon found themselves in a mayhem of fire, and they were dislodged rather quickly. After the vicious attack, Bishop sent reinforcements to John's Knoll, allowing the lost positions to be regained. Four more attacks would be launched during the early afternoon, at a great cost to the Japanese. Bishop's men repulsed them all, but he began to worry about his ammunition situation. In the forward areas, he had only two Vickers guns and a three-inch motor. The Vickers were being used to counter the Japanese heavy machine gun fire, and the motor had only 18 bombs left, placed up on John's Knoll. When the enemy had reached within 20 yards of the Australian positions during the first assault, Sergeant Eddie rushed forward to direct 12-inch motor bombs upon the enemy, causing absolute havoc, winning the day. With ammunition running low and no sign of a supply train coming, Bishop wondered if the next attack would beat them off their high ground. Bishop's men went to work searching the dead Japanese. Teams were collecting ammunition from the dead, from the HQ and from units of Trevor's Ridge, rushing it all to John's Knoll. The positions on John's Knoll were obviously dangerous, and the men knew all of them were likely to be pulled out if no supply train came. To relieve the pressure on John's Knoll, Bishop sent two platoons to launch a counterattack against the enemy's right and left flanks. Lieutenant Payne's platoon took to the right, and Lieutenant Trenery took to the left. Payne's men were climbing 20 yards up a razorback when they saw the enemy and began firing. Payne recalled this. Things got a bit sticky, so we withdrew down the hill a little, then made our way back to the end of the razorback. Payne's men withdrew a bit, but continued to harass the enemy, who greeted them by rolling grenades down the Razorback. Over to the left, Trinary's men cautiously moved around the rear of the Japanese four troops attacking John's Knoll, and they launched a 16-grenade attack, killing many. In the confusion and terror, the Japanese dispersed running straight into Australian gunfire. With just five men, Trinary had cleared a track to John's Knoll, while five other of his men cleared another track in the opposite direction. Trenry would report, Both groups clearing the track ran backwards and forwards shooting at opportune targets. Private Blacker had killed five Japanese shooting his Bren from his hip. Private May killed four Japanese before taking a hit himself and most of the men on average killed two Japanese each. Trenry's men would come back to John's note estimating they had killed 24 Japanese with small arms and just a bunch of grenades. During the late afternoon, a company of the 227th also advanced northeast of John's Knoll, who could hear the platoon counterattacks going on. At 5.30, upon hearing heavy fire from some of the high ground east of John's Knoll, they launched an attack and quickly overran a woodpecker position. Lieutenant Cook, leading the company, would write this. 
I met Mac, and he gave me all he knew, so I pushed forward to contact the enemy. I handed 5th Platoon over to Sergeant Underwood, commonly known as Underpants. The Japs were expecting us, for they opened up with their woodpecker. And did they whistle, but the boys kept pushing on. I sent Sergeant Yandel round on the right flank, while a section from B Company and Corporal Fitzgerald went around on the left. Well, Yandel's section on the right did a wonderful job and made it possible to wipe out the woodpecker. The boys must have killed 20 or so Japs on the first knoll. And by the way they bawled, you would think they were killing a hundred of them. We continued along the ridge for another 100 yards when three LMGs opened up on us and inflicted our first casualties. Two killed, four wounded. One of the killed was Dean, who had done a fine job killing several Japs while firing his Bren from the hip as he advanced. At about this time, I found a young soldier of B Company alongside me, so I asked him, What would win? The good would, whereupon he told me, Not to be so bloody silly. It was no time to talk about races. Well, we had to shift these gunners, so Lum kept moving his section forward on the right flank, and two of the gunners got out while the others covered them. Then Lum volunteered to go over to the top after the remaining one himself, so I slipped up behind him to give him some covering fire. But as Lum went over the top, the Japs cleared off into the kunai. By nightfall, the enemy attack ceased. The Allies had not yielded an inch of ground. A supply train came at midnight, to the great relief of the defenders. Hunkering down the way he did, Bishop had won a notable battle. The 227 lost 7 men dead and 28 wounded, but estimated they had killed maybe 190 Japanese. More importantly, the Australians refused to be pushed from their vantage points. The Japanese would continue their attacks on Trevor's Ridge with their woodpecker from a new position just above the plateau across the Faria. Thus the defenders' hard work was not over. Brigadier Doherty decided to relieve the exhausted 227th with a 216th. After the fierce fight at John's Knoll, the Japanese had pulled back to Shaggy Ridge's line. They ran in front of the Kankiri Saddle. It was here that General Nakai was determined to make his final stand. Additionally, back on October the 9th, the first echelon of Admiral Mori's forces had just reached Kari. Men who had performed the march recalled, The track deteriorated and was only passable on bare feet without any heavy packs and some simple scaffolding had been set up by the engineers to help the troops pass. The cold increased as the group climbed higher, and the precipitous cliffs continued one after another. More men began to die from the cold and from losing their footing. This was at the head of the Sinem River Valley, where there was a sheer drop on one side of the track and a sheer rock face about 90 meters high on the other. The final climb to the summit was made over a muddy, one-man track where the line came to a stop and the man sat with their legs dangled over the edge of the track. The men took four days of rest before they would march onwards towards Sio. For ten days, General Nakano's forces continued their retreat to Kari. Local natives had been enlisted to help carry the food and medical supplies that had landed at Kari up to the troops moving down the coast. Originally, 20 landing craft were supposed to help move the food from Madang, but they were being used for troop transport following the Australian landing at Fitchafen. The Japanese began setting up a series of food caches in villages, seeing tons of rice carried and placed in key positions. The 4th Echelon reached Kari on October the 18th, 
33 days after they had departed Lei. From the original 6,600 IGA and 2,050 IJN forces that had left Lei, a total of 6,544 men, of which 5,001 IGA and 1,543 IGN members had survived the retreat across the Surawag Range, arriving safely to the coast. It was clear General Blamey's earlier assessment that, quote, A few of the enemy remnants will escape the hardship of the mountain tracks was very wrong. But that is it for Green Hell today, for we are going to be jumping back over to the CBI theater. Now there had been considerable developments in the global war for the Allies. The Japanese were gradually being pushed back to the southwest Pacific. The Kingdom of Italy signed the armistice of Casabil, as Allied forces were now occupying Sicily and they were soon going to hit Italy proper. And Germany was about to lose Ukraine. The tide had distinctly turned against the Axis. In the China theater, the Seventh War area of General Sun Lianzhong had dispersed into the fertile plains of Hunan province. The commander of the China Expeditionary Army, General Shanoku, deemed it necessary to perform a crushing blow against him. He ordered General Yokoyama to advance upon the Changdu area, where Sun had his HQ. Yokoyama concentrated his five divisions, the 39th, 58th, 3rd, 116th, and 68th Divisions of the 11th Army along the Yangtze River area between Yicheng and Yuyang by late October. Once his forces had concentrated enough on the left bank of the Yangtze, Yokoyama planned out an offensive set to launch on November the 2nd. Defending the Changdu area was the 6th War Zone's 10th, 26th, 29th, 33rd Army groups, as well as some River Rhine units and two other corps, making a total of 14 corps in all. It was going to be a brutal offensive aimed not at actually capturing the city of Chengdu, but rather tying up the NRA to reduce its combat ability in the immediate region and to thwart it from reinforcing the Burma theater. Over in India, the horrible Bengal famine of 1943 had just kicked off. Back in March of 1942, after the Japanese began their occupation of Rangoon, a major consequence was the severing of routine exports, such as Burmese rice to India and Ceylon. In June, the Bengal government established price controls for rice, and on July the 1st, fixed prices were at a level considerably lower than the prevailing market price. The fixed low prices thus made sellers reluctant to sell, leading to their stocks disappearing, getting stored or being sold on the black market. In mid-October, southwest Bengal was hit by a series of natural disasters that destabilized the price more, causing another rushed scramble for rice, boosting the Calcutta black market. On March the 11th, the provincial government rescinded its price controls, resulting in dramatic rises in the price of rice, due partly to speculations. This caused a massive period of inflation between March and May of 1943. May saw the first reports of death by starvation in Bengal. The government tried to re-establish public confidence by insisting that the crisis was all being caused by just speculation and hoarding. But their propaganda failed to dispel the public's belief that there was, in fact, a shortage of rice. The Bengal government never formally declared a state of famine, even though the Famine Code would have mandated a sizable increase in aid. The unrest gave fuel to the Free India Movement, led by Subhas Chandra Bose, and many of his troops would have diverted from Burma to help maintain the order. Bose made his famous proclamation, Give me blood, and I will give you freedom. As he assumed leadership over the reformed INA, 
on July the 4th of 1943. The new INA's first division under Major General Mohamed Zaman Kiana had drawn many Indian POWs who had previously joined the Mohan Singh's first INA. They also drew POWs who had not joined in 1942. Their new force consisted of the second guerrilla regiment known as the Gandhi Brigade, which consisted of two battalions under Colonel Iniat Kayani, the third guerrilla regiment known as the Azad Brigade, consisting of three battalions under Colonel Gulzara Singh, and the 4th guerrillas known as the Nahru Brigade, led by Lieutenant Colonel Gurubask Singh Dilan. The 1st guerrilla regiment, Subhas Brigade, was led by Colonel Shah Nawaz Khan and was an independent unit consisting of three infantry battalions. There was also the Special Operations Group, Baradur Group, which were operating behind enemy lines. And there was even a separate all-female unit created under Captain Lakshmi Samamithan. This unit was intended to have combat commitments, they were named the Rani of Jahangsi Regiment after the legendary rebel queen Lakshmi Ba of the 1857 rebellion. Their members were drawn from the female civil populations of Malay and Burma. The reformed INA were reinvigorated and they were causing a lot of mayhem. The Indian government responded with a scorched earth policy to deny foodstuffs to the Japanese and free Indian army who might try to invade India. They established a foodstuff scheme to manage the distribution of goods ensuring that those in high-priority roles such as civil servants, police, and the armed forces received top priority. A second boat denial policy was also implemented. Under this policy, the army confiscated approximately 45,000 rural boats, severely disrupting riverborne movement of labor, supplies, and food. This cost the livelihoods of boatmen and fishermen. Leonard G. Pinnell, a British civil servant who headed the Begal government's Department of Civil Supplies, told the Famine Commission that the policy, quote, completely broke the economy of the fishing class. Transport was generally unavailable to carry seed and equipment to distant fields or rice to the market hubs. Artisans and other groups who relied on boat transport to carry goods to market were offered no recompense. Neither were rice growers nor the network of migratory laborers. The large-scale removal or destruction of rural boats caused a near-complete breakdown of the existing transport and administrative infrastructure and market system for the movement of rice paddies. No steps were taken to provide for the maintenance or repair of the confiscated boats, and many fishermen were unable to return to their trade. The army took no steps to distribute food rations to make up for the interruption of supplies. Meanwhile, military buildups caused massive displacement of Bengalis from their homes and farmlands which were used to construct airstrips and camps. Nearly the entire output of India's cloth, leather, silk, and wool industries were sold off to the military, leaving the rural population to suffer through what was called a cloth famine. President of the Ramakrishna Mission in Bombay of July 1943 would report this. The robbing of graveyards for clothes. Disrobing of men and women in out-of-way places for clothes, and minor riotings here and there have been reported. Stray news have come that women have committed suicide for want of cloth. Thousands of men and women cannot go out to attend their usual work outside for want of a piece of cloth to wrap around their loins. The Bengali population suffered tremendously. With the arrival of 500,000 or more Burmese refugees bringing hungry mouths, the diseases like dysentery, malaria, smallpox, chloria, all needing food, clothes, medical aid, and other resources, 
this stressed Bengali past its max. Despite all of this, Bengal continued to export rice to Ceylon for months, even after the famine was apparent. To make matters even worse, local rice crops were becoming infected with brown spot disease. On October the 16th, Bengal was hit by a massive cyclone. This resulted in the deaths of 14,500 and 190,000 cattle. The cyclone unleashed three tsunamis, which overwhelmed the seawalls and flooded 450 square miles, adding more misery to 2.5 million people. Bose went to work, exploiting the crisis backed enthusiastically by the Japanese, to establish the Azad Hind Provincial Government of Free India in Singapore in October. The first INA was roughly 40,000 troops strong. The reformed second INA would begin with around 12,000 troops. And as a result of Bose's dynamic appeal would peak to around 100,000 volunteers and combatants of around 50,000. Bose would say, Local civilians joined the INA, doubling its strength. They included baristas, traders, and plantation workers, as well as the Kudabadi Sindhi Sorankars, who were working as shopkeepers. Many had no military experience. It is also estimated 20,000 Malayan Indians and another 20,000 ex-Indian army members volunteered for the INA. In the end, an estimated 2 to 3.8 million Bengalis died out of a population of 60.2 million. They died of starvation, malaria, and diseases brought on from malnutrition, population displacement, and a lack of health care. In the man-made famines afterwards, millions would be left impoverished and the social fabric had been torn to shreds. Nearly 1.6 million families disintegrated. Men sold their farms and left home to work or join the Indian Army. Women and children became homeless, traveling to larger cities in search of some relief. It was a vicious cycle of death that would help bolster the Indian independence movement. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Over there I've just released an episode in both French and English on France's role during the Pacific War. And please do check out my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel for more exclusive podcasts. The battle for Saddleburg was about to begin, and so was the battle for Chengdu. Within India, a horrible, man-made famine led to tremendous devastation, and in turn, this helped bolster Sabhas Tandwa Bose's Indian National Army. Japan was given a rare chance to obtain a powerful ally.